we're back. We're, we're back on the Enter the Dragon. <laughs> we're, we're all aboard the Dragon Wagon. I think it's the biggest one of the books so far. Because A Feast for Crows just wasn't long enough. He took a look at Feast for Crows and went, you know what it was lacking? It was extra pages. There's an emissary from King Cleon, who is known um, as, as the Butcher King of Astapor. Lovely chap. You're the Butcher King of the... Of the Astapor Butcher Kings? Oh, oh! I'd love to marry into your family. I'm sure you solve all marital disputes in peace and mutual respect. Hello. Welcome to Shark Liver Oil's triumphant return to Game of Thrones as we enter our coverage of A Dance with Dragons. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And I'm going to start this, Dave, by making a solemn promise... <laughs> to, to to get the title of this book right on more occasions than I get it wrong. It, it's not a dance of dragons. It's not a dance for dragons. It's not a dance during the dragon age. It's a dance with dragons. Yeah, the dragons are actually physically in the place. Yeah. Eh? yeah. They're, not, they're not in the stands. Yeah. They're in the pit. They're dancing. They're dancing. <laughs> and they're saying dance with us. Yeah. So after quite the... Uh, Quite the break from Game of Thrones. We kind of needed it, didn't we? Um, we're back. Yes. We're, we're back on the Enter the Dragon. <laughs> we're, we're all aboard the Dragon Wagon. You know, you know what? Those two jokes all by themselves have just increased my excitement about doing this book about 9,000%. So thank you. Thank you for that. I think we should start each of these now with the phrase, All aboard the Dragon Wagon. All aboard the dragon wagon. <laughs> oh, that sounds like some sort of awful chat-up line, doesn't it? That you could imagine, sort of, you'd imagine kind of Bruce, Bruce Lee, rest in peace, if he'd have survived using in his later years to pick up women, you know. You want to get on board the dragon wagon? <laughs> I'd imagine it'd be some, like, Hot Wheels that he'd be oh. cruising around him. The dragon wagon. <laughs> this, this is the dragon wagon. Then you go down the way, get to his house. This is the dragon palace. <laughs> this is this is the dragon bathroom. That's yes. the dragon toilet. That's the. You see where I'm doing with this? I was in Enter the Dragon. I need to emphasize this. <laughs> right, now, we're going to take our time going through Dance with Dragons. Um, firstly, because it's so big. I mean, it's actually... I think it's the biggest one of the books so far. Because because a feast for crows just wasn't long enough. He took a look at feast for crows and went, you know what it was lacking. I mean, I mean, we, you know, we, we've all acknowledged, and I'm the author, and I acknowledge it too, that it was lacking some things. And I think what we all know what it was lacking was extra pages. Now, <laughs> come on, yeah. Um, so there's, that's the reason we're going to take our time with it. And also, um, once we get to the end of this, we're looking at the frightening abyss of life without any more mainstream Game of Thrones literature to talk about <laughs> because he's still not written the next one. So um. I, I Hope springs eternal, Matt, although it's worth saying that, you know, we're releasing this sort of in the run-up to Christmas, so if we were going to get it this year, we probably would have had it already, wouldn't we? Hmm. Um, so it's fair to say it's going to be at least another six months before it comes out, but, uh, you know, hang in there. Yeah, yeah. Now... So we jump straight in. So if you haven't, if you're coming new to this podcast, um, what we do every week is we break um, a Game of Thrones book down into a, not not always Game of Thrones, but at the moment, 
for the next few weeks anyway, where we're breaking down <laughs> Dance with Dragons into a series of parts and then discussing them almost like a page-by-page guide. This week, we are going from the start of the book as far as a chapter called Tyrion, mm. uh, which begins, They departed Pentos by the Sunrise Gate. So that's a little clue as to what's going to happen in this part. <laughs> Spoilers. Spoiler. Um, I tell you what, just knowing that we were... Because we end with a, a Tyrion chapter here, and we also start with a Tyrion chapter in this section. And that was enough to make me punch the ceiling in complete delight. And I, t- Because there was no Tyrion in the last book, right? Yeah. None. Yeah. And I remember when we were finishing off um, A Storm of Swords... I remember being like, you know, something like Tyrion ended up doing the thing that Tyrion does previously. And um, and it's very dramatic and you end the book. And you were like, so Dave, you're looking forward to the next one? I was like, yeah, can't wait to hear what happens with Tyrion. And then there's just this heavy silence. <laughs> I'm like, we are going to find out what happens with Tyrion, aren't we? And you were like, yeah, uh, eventually we will. Uh, no problem. <laughs> like, for fuck's sake. And then George goes and writes the biggest book so far at that point. Yeah. With no Tyrion in it at all. And I, Tyrion's really one of my favourite characters. Yeah. So it was definitely a slog getting through uh, A Feast for Crows uh, for a variety of reasons. The lack of Tyrion definitely up there amongst them. Um, so I was just like, I opened it and I was like, Tyrion chapter. <sighs> yeah. Oh, everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, the way the narrative is set out here is quite confusing especially considering where if you're watching the tv series where the tv series is up to now because they're all at very different points and what you need to do what we need to do now for the start of dance of dragons if you remember when we finished um feast for crows with um i think it was was it brienne possibly being killed and um there's some that sam getting to old town and seeing a few of the people there now we need to rewind right back to pretty much the end of storm of swords um and now we're going to look at the wall um the three cities so sort of bravos and all that and daenerys because we've not heard anything we've not heard anything from these people yet flipping daenerys as well so i mean taken out Jon snow yeah. Tyrion Lannister and yeah. Daenerys Targaryen. Yeah. Like, it were basically the three characters that I find myself able to spend time in a room with and not want to, like, kill or just fall asleep in boredom from. Yeah. So, I, I don't know how you felt about the way that they sort of divided up these two narratives, but I thought, like, he couldn't have done more to make A Feast for Crows uninteresting to me, considering how invested I am in the whole in the whole thing. Like, did you think, mm. did you think this worked, or was this just a bit of a bodge job? I think it was, um, I don't think it's ideal. And the, th- the weird yeah. thing is with this, it's, um, I'd say, a, a third to a half of the book is concentrating on that. And then we conflate again and we go back to everybody. Mm. And it, it does feel quite messy. It feels like he's just sort of written what he was comfortable with and then thought, I'll leave that for a bit later. And now yeah. it's finally going back to it. So it's, it's a strange way to tell the tale, especially considering... <laughs> the series is sort of almost oh, it's, it's almost flipped that on its head. It's got to the end of Dance with Dragons for some storylines and it's still very early for others. So if yeah. you watch the series, you should find um, when you read through this book that some things happen, some things happen differently, some things don't happen yet at all and we assume will happen 
in the next book and some things go way beyond the series still so should be a nice mixture anyway well, that's that's an extraordinarily positive spin on the thing i, <laughs> well, I would describe it more as it was it was more sort of a plot a plot version a kind of a reader's version of like the disorientation you feel when you're in a plane and it kind of banks and you're like oh shit where's where's down now like <laughs> it was it was like that for me having because i've I watched the last series of Game of Thrones. So, to a certain extent, I've now spoiled myself for the book. But I can't remember what I saw in the TV series and what I saw in the books. So I'm sitting there at the start of this thing going, oh, right, he's here, right, but has he already... And is this... (laughs) And then did he... But then is she over there? And then... (laughs) like I feel like I need a primer in Game of Thrones just to get my head I need like a wall chart thing just for how this all fits together and that this made me think right imagine what it must have been like trying to write the TV series out of this and like how they mapped out like where things were going to go and what new bits were going to come in and how it's going to work I just have this wonderful image of a whiteboard like the size of the side of a house covered in really tiny post-it notes where they're trying to make it all make sense and then about two thirds of the way along somebody just got really angry there's no more post-it notes and there's just the words oh for fuck's sake written in like 20 foot high red letters yeah yeah oh, we'll try and do a, like a little mini reset every time we start a new character just to remind you where we are um, oh, you see that help. professionalism that Matt well, I appreciate know. that um, we start with um, another prologue he, he, he does enjoy these um, we, we always start each book with a prologue and more often than not the person in it dies so get ready <laughs> <laughs> it's bad isn't it though because now I'm in a place where I'm like I'm, I'm reading it and I'm like I see no reason to be invested in this at all to be honest <laughs> you whoever you are with your hilarious name going to die in about six pages anyway so whatever yeah so we had the ranger in the fir- in the very first one if you remember we had the uh, master crescent um over at dragonstone in the second oh, book yeah. uh there was the i think it was the knight's watchman in the in the third yeah. one and then um pate in uh, feast for crows who we assumed had died and then popped up at the end so maybe hasn't well, well all right leading me to this thing right these prologues seem to like I, because I'm, I'm used to a prologue, like setting something up and planting little narrative seeds that are going to come to fruition at some point. Yeah. But we've now spent, I don't know, we've had two prologues that spent time in Old Town, which is like half of the whole town, whole time we've spent in Old Town in the whole narrative over several thousand pages of, of um, narrative and script, right? Yeah. And I'm like, so not only am I kind of like, oh, you're going to die, you are, mate. I'm also a bit like. Should I even bother remembering you? Because I, I really like narrative callbacks. But I've been waiting for... I've, I've, I'm backed up on narrative callbacks. He's going to have to do them all at the, at the start of the last book. Yeah. Just to like make sense of them all. You know? Yeah, because yeah, Feast of Crows is a bit weird because you had the prologue in Old Tome. And then by the, t- yeah, by the time we sort of sold 10 again, it was at the very end of the book, wasn't it, with Sam? So, mm. Um, mm. But yeah, so this prologue is North of the Wall. And it's, it sort of takes place just after... So we've rewound now at the wall. Um, we are just at the stage where um, Stannis has shown up and um, relieved um, the Night's Watch. Sort of, he's basically saved the Night's Watch because remember there was this wildling army attacking the wall. 
and then mm. Stannis turned up and sort of saved the day, if you like. And we're, we're with the other side of that. We're with the sort of aftermath of the wildlings and with this guy called Varmir Six Skins, who is that uh. skin changer, creepy bloke who always was sitting in a corner giving daggers to to John when, um, whenever we saw him with Mance. Mm. Um, and it starts off as a warg dream. And at first I thought this might be John or it might be Arya, but it turns out yeah. it isn't. And it's this uh, attack north of the wall on these sort of small group of wildlings by uh, this pack of wolves. Um, so we get, so we get a mother and baby death on the second page, which sets a tone for the book, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's and this this as you know, this was a complaint I had about the end of the series is uh, the, the way the series has gone recently, where it's like if somebody appears in one of these passages, I assume they're going to die horribly, which just makes me disengage a little bit. <laughs> um, but it's definitely, I mean, I'm not saying that's by any means not deliberate on George Martin's part. Like, he, you know, this could be what he's going for. Mm. Um, but it's definitely, welcome back to Westeros. Yes, it is as horrifyingly brutal and merciless as it was before. Welcome back. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Now, settle down. <laughs> Horrible death. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's sort of in two parts. So there's the wolf attack, which he's obviously part of as a warg. Um, mm. And this uh, small group of uh, wildling survivors is killed. It's um, It really gives you the impression of just how bad things are for the wildlings now. They've been smashed in this battle and they've just nowhere to go. The whole um, yeah. the whole point of that battle was this desperate attempt to get south of the wall. Now that's failed and they're yeah. just all sort of scattered and getting yeah. picked off one by one. Um, he hasn't had a good time of it himself. He, um, Varmir was, he sort of, he was in the body of this bird when um, the battle began, and then it looks like Melisandre burst him into flames and ended up sort of flying back into his own body. And then yeah. he's been stabbed at some point as well while he was trying to take a cloak from a, a dead woman. Um, and a sort of son ran over and stabbed him. And now he's yeah. stuck in this little hut on his own, um, yeah. freezing cold, close to death, with just this single wildling girl looking after him, and she's disappeared now as well. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think when you you think you summed it up quite well when you said bleak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it really is, isn't it? My word. And and it was, you know, good little intro to sort of welcome back to this part of the world and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, although I didn't remember Six Skins from before, so I was a little bit like, should I know all the emotional resonance behind all of these events, or are you simply the dickhead you appear to be? <laughs> I, fairly safe assumption, pro tip, fairly safe assumption when reading books in the, the Song of Ice and Fire series, if somebody appears to be a dickhead, they, they probably are, and they're going to show you all the different ways in which they're a dickhead in horrifying depth over the next <laughs> few pages. Yeah, so he's um, he, he can... He can go into the body of his wolf one eye every so often. Um, other than that, he's stuck wearing this little sort of dying embers of a campfire, freezing his tits off. And <laughs> you, you, you know what? You know what you do in that situation. You try and recall some of the good times. So um, he remembers such such heady memories as killing his brother as a dog and then seeing the dog put down. Um, oh, oh, happy days. <laughs> he, happy he remembers days. being... Um, basically rejected by his family and um, taken under the wing of this skin changer called Hagen, who he eventually overpowers and kills. <laughs> he, he remembers being um, Lord Beast. Uh, he basically lived in the sort of hills near this village and kept uh, stealing women and basically... <laughs> he 
came the hound of the fucking Baskervilles for shits and giggles as well. As a good career move, he became this sort of eldritch monster. Yeah. And then he remembers joining up with Mance as well. So um, he is, yeah, he's probably one of the, and this is quite a strong roster, one of the most repulsive characters in the entire series. Yeah, well, and you can say this for George, can't you? He can he can crack out a pencil sketch of the most repulsive character you've ever encountered in literature in two and a half pages. Like, not a problem. Not a pro- He's just like, you want a really, really despicable bastard? That's my specialty, son. Sit back. Here we go. Now, skin changing, brother killing, hound of the Baskervilles looking son of a bitch. Here we go. Yeah, he has piled it all on here, hasn't he? Um, and, and then ju- just sort of the cherry on the cake is when Thistle returns, who's this wildling girl who's been looking after him. She sort of says, oh, we've got to move. The, um, the whites are on the way. And his response is to, because uh, he's just about finished, he mm. sort of jumps into her and tries to take her over. Um, but she manages to fight. I think she almost fights him. Well, she kind of fights him off. Um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't sort of help her anyway because she ends up as a white. But she, she fights him off and he ends up... There's this weird description of like how he kind of dies, isn't it? Where yeah, he yeah. sort of ev- almost like evaporates into everything. And he thinks, oh, this is brilliant. And then sort of death happens and it's just like cold dark slap in the face and then suddenly yeah. he's he's inside the um the wolf one eye and that's where he's trapped yeah. now his his real his real body's dead yeah 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 and through yeah. the and through through the wolf's eyes he sees sort of the village and the whites are all crawling around where he used to be now and um yeah. thistle's one of them Tell you what, though, that is, you could say he gets fucking light get off there, doesn't he? Rather than being turned into one of the White Walkers. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know, he, he, he might be a wolf for the rest of his life. You might, he might have some really, really horrible surprises ahead of him in re-personal grooming and the way in which wolves interact <laughs> with one another. <laughs> but he's alive, eh? eh? He's not a horrifying cookie monster eye-looking crazy bastard thing. Yeah. True, true. You've got to take your positives where you can, north of the wall, haven't you? <laughs> you might be a wolf, your nose might be stuffed up somebody else's ass, but you are not a member of the Walking Dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's where, we leave, um, that's where we leave the prologue. And then we go from the extremities of the most cold place you can be to one of the hottest as we go across the narrow sea um, towards the free cities. And uh, we meet up with Tyrion. Whee! Hey! Um, Who just, doubtless is the same happy-go-lucky scampy always has been. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> if you remember... You need to tell me that's not true, Matt. <laughs> if you remember, uh, last time we were with Tyrion, he'd, um, he'd just murdered his, um, mur- murdered his lover and killed his father on the toilet and then made a run for it. So, and then not turned up for 1,500 pages in a line, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, it does feel like welcoming back an old friend, this, doesn't it? After a it, long it, time departed. It does a bit, but it's sort of, it's weird, isn't it? Because there's been this long gap, you know, it's an old friend that you're very, very fond of. And, you know, who is, has seemed to represent a kind of, you know, a bit of, a bit of kind of human relief from the otherwise relentless pressing pressure of, you know, of uh, unknowable human darkness around you. But then you yeah. realise that the yeah. last time you saw him, he did something completely horrifying. And yeah. Like, um, so it's a bit like sort of like, how are you, mate? You're all right. Yeah, you, you, good, good, good to see you. Yeah, yeah. No, lovely. No, where you been? You prison? Is it? You've been in prison? Oh, oh. Um, how how was it? 
Was it good? Was it no bad? I would presume. <laughs> anyway, good to see it. You know, like you just I, there's a bit of how is this going to go down with Tyrion now? Yeah, it's like if you meet up with an old friend and you say, "Oh, how's it going?" and then they just they're really like, there's loads of bad stuffs happened, and they're just like, "Yeah," <laughs> they just lay it all on you straight away. And you're like, Ooh, uh, "Okay, oh, well, <laughs> let's talk." Obviously, um, I'll buy you a drink. That's, this is a very situation for which, as English men, we are not well well set up to deal. Is it like yeah. it's kind of like, "Well, let's start with a pint and move <laughs> on from there." I like how your go to option is buy you a drink because. The, basically, what happens to Tyrion here is he goes on the booze cruise to end all booze cruises. <laughs> <laughs> he basically gets shut in a cabin, uh, hidden down there, just with loads and loads of wine, and basically spends yeah. the entire time drunk. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know about you, but the idea of making a sea crossing more bearable by being like sick as a dog the entire time I, the logic of that eludes me somewhat i have to be truthful like I, you know like I, I i like being out on the sea i think the sea's fantastic it's great but at the same time you know roll pitch back and forth you know yeah. and that's that's when i'm on a flipping you know ferry that's a big metal <laughs> stable thing not like some wooden you know, apprentice coracle thing. And he's down there going, what I really need to do to make this better is be horribly drunk. <laughs> I suppose that is the logic of an alcoholic. And I think we can pretty much say that Tyrion is, is yeah, there now, well, isn't he? That's undeniable, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he gets stuffed into this barrel, which sounds awful, mm. and rolled around. He ends up in... Um, Ilrio's mansion in Pentos. So Ilrio's the guy who's, uh, if you remember, initially was uh, protecting Daenerys. Um, so he's mm. sort of been pulling a few strings from across the sea, very much hey. um, in league with Varys, isn't he? Yeah, um, he's not nearly as smooth as he appears in the TV series, though. Eh? In the yeah. TV series, Ilrio's got this sort of... He's played by... Um, uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, Roger Allen. Yeah, last scene is yeah exactly the impossibly (laughs) smooth Peter Mannion from the thick of it, and and then and then it came to the uh, who's like you know kind of floppy hair, quite patrician, you know all of this. So you could imagine him masterminding some scheme, but then um, but then you know the the description of Illyrio in this is this sort of like he's got boobs basically. He has got (laughs) saggy man breasts, old man breasts, which are described as globular at one point. Like, oh, Great description, that, isn't it? That, that for your political mastermind, your Machiavelli over the sea there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, he gets welcomed to uh, Ilrio's mansion by the, the owner himself. He goes for a wander around. It's a nice, it's, you know, it's nice digs, but um, mm. Tyrion's worried about, you know, exactly what is going to happen to him, because Obviously, he's only getting help from Ilrio for as long as it, you know, suits Ilrio and is profitable for him to be uh, to do so. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not a lot of fun to be in Tyrion's head anymore, is it? He's really sort of depressed and malicious now, um, and he just—I mean, there's this bit. I think that sums it up where this blonde girl gets sent to his to you know to warm his bed, and um, yeah. he tries to make her he tries to frighten her by saying all right i'll sleep with you later and then when that doesn't frighten her he basically threatens to strangle her and says you know your boss won't mind just to get a rise out of her and it's just pretty painful to watch a character who you have quite liked 
seem to be yeah. moving down a, a very dark path. Very much, and uh, well, and and it, it you you mentioned something about this at the end of the last one, didn't you? You were like, kind of, you know, he's done some pretty fucked up stuff here. You know, he's killed this woman that he's previously been completely in love with, and he shot his father to death, yeah. and um, and then run away. And you were like, you know, is this is this you know the Tyrion character turning dark? And and to be honest with you, even going into this, I was I thought no, you know, I thought you know this is you know call it. Call it whatever you like, but I don't think this is Tyrion becoming like, um, well, becoming like his father because he says, doesn't he? He's like, you know, I've always been the one of your children that's most like you. Yeah. Um, and just before he kills him to prove the point, and um, and so I was quite sad by this. I was like, ah, oh, fuck, that is the way he's going. Great, some other merciless bastard in this book, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it's not like we lack for merciless bastards in this series. But and so and Tyrion was always a nice little counterweight to that. So I'm a bit nervous about this because I'm kind of well. I don't think you needed another, you know, completely fucked up human being to prove to me that human beings are completely fucked up. Mm. So what's the purpose of this? You know, what are you doing with Tyrion's journey, sort of thing? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, he has this. Um, he has this feast with Ilrio. Il you can see why Ilrio's so fat because it's. It is some of the, the best food I have come across in Westeros. Oh, it's not even Westeros, is it? Whatever. The sort of the world of George Martin. Um, yeah, it's uh, epic meal times. Yeah, including a, including a, a great sort of poison mushroom routine where oh. Ilrio's like, try the mushrooms. And Tyrion's <laughs> like, no, they're poisonous. And it turns out they're not. And they all have a yeah. good idea. Ilrio has a good old laugh about it. Oh, it's a joke, but he's also making a point, isn't he? He's sort of like, he's trying to prove that, you know, like it doesn't. I could kill you, but I'm not right yeah. now. Yeah. Rather than just trying to shit him up for the sake of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, he's he's trying to um, get through to Tyrion, isn't he? There as well to to show mm. him just how how powerless he is, Tyrion, but how Ilrio is choosing to help him. Um, and they discuss plans. Tyrion's basically, as he was on the way over the seat, was thinking he's got two options really: go to the wall. And join the Night's Watch. Sort of everything's forgiven when you go up there. But he's thinking the last he heard, Janos Slint was going to be sent up there to take charge. So maybe not the best place to go. Um, and the That's other... an awkward reunion, isn't it? My <laughs> yeah. word. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you've been sent to the wall too, have you? Uh, yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> well, oh, well, the toilets are over there. I was just about to say that, yeah. We've had an opening. Latrine duty. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> it might be frozen, but you've still got to get it off, so go on. Carry on. Here's the toothbrush. Yeah. Uh, the other option is Dawn, and go and link up with Marcella and uh, and try and put her on the Iron Throne. And he kind of admits here later on that this is a bit of a fool's errand in that there's no way Dawn can win a war with yeah. um basically it's the point that um Prince Doran made to Ariana when she tried to kick things off like this. There's no way Dawn can win. And Tyrion yeah. deep down admits he doesn't much care, he just wants to create as much trouble as possible before he before he dies. Yeah. Yeah, um, totally. But Ilrio says there may be a third way. <gasps> and that involves a certain you know, light herd Young lady who's living it up in the old uh, slave cities at the moment with a with a trio of dragons. And Tyrion's like, hmm, 
Dragon's Interesting. Now, um, from here, from here, if you were Tyrion, would you take that? Would you would you roll the dice in that particular direction? <laughs> given well, given the dodgy relationship that exists between your family and her family, and the fact mm. that you know she's a very benevolent character at the moment, she has some quite good like moral struggles and that, but you know she's quite a benevolent character basically, mm. um, because she's far away from all the people that she grew up hearing had screwed her. Yeah, but. I bet you he turns up in her court and goes, I'm a Lannister. She, he wouldn't even get to the last syllable of that word before she'd have like a throwing knife thrown through his eye. You know? I'm a Lannister thwack. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that was the end of that storyline. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, well, I think you're right. I think it's a big gamble. But then, having said that, considering the other two options on the table that we've just discussed, yeah. he, may, he may decide that that is his only realistic option. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right there. Like, you know, what else have they got? Like, mm. yeah. Speaking of Daenerys, that's the next chapter. Welcome back, Daenerys. It's lovely seeing these characters again who we actually it's, are interested it's great. in. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's like a holiday in the sun. <laughs> um, when we last left Daenerys, she was, um, she'd just made it to Astor. No, it's one beginning with what is it? Was it Astapor, Yunkai? No, Yunkai, no, it's at, uh, it's the other Marine. one, Marine, Marine, Marine. Yeah, she's a Marine. She's a Marine. She? She's come yeah. through Yunkai and then Astapor and then Marine. Yeah, so she she took over Astapor and then left, and then she went around Yunkai, didn't she? Because the, um, yeah. the sort of she basically decided to move on without taking yeah. the city, and then she took Marine after crawling through, after she sent. Um, yeah, it wasn't easy, but they got it. Um, and now she's trying to she's trying to sort of win the peace, isn't she? Um, yeah. And this is this whole chapter is just setting up just how difficult she's finding ruling over this people who don't really want her there. Oh yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. My word! I, for some reason, this whole sequence sat. It was much more interesting to me um, in the book than it was in the TV series. Mm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I might end up doing more callbacks to the TV series than I should, but like, I think this is one of the really notable ones um, because it's all it's properly told from Daenerys's perspective, mm. you know, and you really get a sense of her looking out at this city and you know on the one hand thinking, look how far I've come, you know, I was I was stranded, I was I was deserted, I was alone, and now I'm a queen, um, and on the other hand. You know, she's got all of these problems, but I feel like in the TV series, they, they kind of enjoyed a little bit too much having the opportunity to do all of these scenes where these horrifying things happen mm. elsewhere in the elsewhere in the city. Um, and the ones that really work in this are where it all comes back to her. And you have this sense of, you know, her trying to deal as a single human being with the massive responsibility of rebuilding this whole this whole culture in liberty because she's just abolished slavery there right yeah um and i just yeah I, I just cared about it so much more in the tv series i was just like yeah of course you're gonna have a scene in a brothel where somebody gets killed of course ah lol blood you mm. know like it all became quite tiresome to me whereas in this in this whole chapter there's loads of great examples of where the blood matters and where it counts and mm. i thought that was really 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 well done and a, definitely a strength of the book over the tv series yeah, so it, so it's all pretty much all takes place in the almost all of it takes place in the her sort of throne room mm. in um, in Marine. It starts with one of her and Sully has been killed in the street, 
Um, and it's the first sort of soldier that's been killed by this group called the Sons of the Harpy, which is sort of mm. a, res- a resistance group. Um, yeah. And they apparently have just been killing sort of freed slaves so far, but they're obviously getting bolder now. Um, there's a s- sad little note with the Unsullied guy who he was on his own because he went to a brothel, even though he's mm. obviously a eunuch. Um, yeah. Just to be sort of to sleep, literally sleep next to a woman yeah. and just be held, which is, uh, yeah. yeah, kind of wow. sad. It's incredibly sad, yeah, and really sort of moving um, image of the humanity of the, you know, because the Unsullied are supposed to have been beaten out of all of their all of their human emotions like that. But, you know, it, it turns out, stop threatening them with violence and they are as real as anybody else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, really, really fantastic, um, fantastic sequence incredibly sad as well yeah now the um the early part of this chapter sets up some of the problems so obviously you've got this group the sons of the harpy getting worse you've got the unsullied who are actually policing the city and um one of her they might be embarrassed and says that you know the unsullied are the soldiers not policemen basically he doesn't use that word but you know that they're used to their strength is standing in formation and not breaking before an enemy it's not you know, investigating crimes, kind of obvious. Um, and they're not obviously not suited to sort of street fighting either. Um, Dario and um, the sort of, uh, you know, the um, cell swords that she's got, they're all off in various parts of the sort of countryside trying to make sure that the, the people out in the country are actually, you know, going to be loyal as well. I love mm. this part where Dario is over in the mountains trying to convince a people to um to open the pass to allow sort of trade to come through there yeah do you know which people it is <laughs> i saw this and i was so happy about it, is it matt is it is it the lemon of the lazarine <laughs> I, I know that um, obviously, Sajora is gutted for being sent away from oh, you know, the love yeah. of his life. But if if only he knew what he's missing out on as well, he gets to treat with. You can almost imagine him. He's somewhere out across some unknowable waste in Essos, <laughs> and then his ears prick, and he's like, "I could be sounding really badass right now." They're talking about him. They're talking about the lambman. Of the Lazarine. <laughs> if uh, if you don't know what we're talking about here, this is um, I think it goes way back to series two of the TV series where the guy who plays Sajora, um, one of his lines is that he talks about the Lambman of the Lazarine. <laughs> it's just a, it's just a, I don't know. It's, we just love that line, don't we? Well, it is. Uh, he made it impossibly sexy, didn't he? <laughs> like Ian Glenn, knowing that he was basically supposed to be a dusty suit of armor with a ginger wig on on top of a horse, he was like. I've got one opportunity here to sell this. One, and I'm going to sell it with everything I've got. And he just looks sideways at the camera. <laughs> Khaleesi. <laughs> the Lambman of the Lazarine. <laughs> you always hear him sort of raising his eyebrows so high they disappear into his receding hairline. It's just fantastic stuff. <laughs> I think in one of our... Um, Clash of Kings casts. We had a Landman of the Lazarine off as well. We did the best impression of it. <laughs> I remember so, that. Yeah, I remember that was fantastic. We should do yeah. that more often. But yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah. So there's that. There's a Landman of the Lazarine to contend with. There's also um, 
she goes for a quick walk in the courtyard just to remind us that the dragons are still growing. They're getting sort of to the teenage stage, it seems now. Um, <laughs> quite tough to take care of. And the thing is, yeah. as well, she she doesn't a she doesn't know how to train them, and b she's yeah. not really got much time to try. So it seems mm. that she's almost being pushed towards being a neglectful pair with these as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that interesting, that little vibe there, I would have liked to see more talk about those dragons because they kind of, they keep appearing on screen in the TV series, but only, so they're clearly important for the story and obviously, you know, the clues in the name of the book and stuff. But um, but I do feel a little bit like, I don't know, they're, again, it feels a little bit by the numbers, the way they put, they put the plot out in the TV series. Whereas yeah. here, I want a bit more of Daenerys's sort of emotional experience of, you know, they call her the mother of dragons. And, you know, they, you know, there's this moment of rebirth where she gets these dragons and it's really emotionally significant. So I would have liked a little bit more here about, you know, how, how she's feeling it, you know, um, mm. and how difficult it is to be neglecting these increasingly terrifying beasts. Yeah, it seems like it's the kind of thing you don't want to be neglecting at any point in your what would be a much shorter right. life. They're, not, to they're going to go much further than writing, you know, angsty poetry about how nobody. They're going to. It's going to be a lot worse than acquiring a a, a, a circa two thousand and one Linkin Park habit. Listing, isn't it? No, 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 no. It's going to go way beyond that. They're going to barbecue your house. Yeah, she walks out in the courtyard and. Viserys was in, in the corner with some headphones on, bopping his head to one step closer. <laughs> <laughs> not, no, not bopping his head, just staring into the middle distance, feeling angrier and angrier. <laughs> There's literally a fire building inside him. <laughs> um, so, so Daenerys retires to her chambers to put on this special Miranese robe called a toka, which is... Um, Nothing to do, nothing to do with smoking questionable substances. Nothing to do with uh, smoking, no. It's um, it's this sort of weird robe that uh, the old, like, older sort of richer people in m- Marine wear. And she has to wear it as well. It's, it was summed up quite nicely by one of her advisors who says, um, if you want to be king of the rabbits, you have to wear floppy ears. Um <laughs> such a stupid line as well and I love that he put that in there instead of going instead of you know reaching for kind of root one portentous fantasy language like if you, if you want to be queen of the terrifying sea beasts you must wear the scales you know or something like that you want to be you can just imagine him like for some reason I imagine him with the accent from where I grew up in Birmingham you, know, you want to be king of the bunnies Got to put on the floppy ears, haven't you? Do you know what I mean? Like, I just like I, I love that. Now, I now from now on, Marine is Birmingham. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> I quite like the use of it. Yeah, I think they reach for he reached for rabbits just to show how little the for all of the sort of problems that the rulers are having with the ruled. It basically shows how little the rulers respect the ruled as well. Um, yeah, they, they yeah. see them as these sort of pathetic, rabbits. useless. Yeah. Soft creatures. Yeah. Um, we meet a couple of these new advisors. So obviously you've got Sir Barristan still. Dario Naharis is off, you know, with the lamb men of Lazarine. Um, <laughs> we've got these 
other two who I think have been drawn from Marine themselves. This guy called Reznak Mo Reznak um, and this other guy called Skahaz. Once, once again, that's an outstanding hip-hop name, isn't it? Reznak Mo Reznak. I would rap under that name if I thought I could pull it off. So good they named him twice. Exactly. Reznak, but then with more Reznak on top. And there's also this guy called Skahaz who's known as the Shave Pate. And he basically was one of these... Do you remember, um, you, we saw these uh, in some of the earlier books, these sort of uh, fabulous um, warriors with these very carefully tussled hair, which are sort of teased into these strange shapes with, like, wax. Yeah. Like, really weird haircuts. Uh, um, well, it turns out some of those warriors have now shaved their heads to show their loyalty to, to Daenerys, and the uh, shave page is one of them. Hey, no no greater sacrifice can there be for a man to give up his barnet before it's his time. <laughs> yeah. No, there's um there are two th- th- these two characters each sort of advise a different course here to deal with the fact that one of her soldiers has been killed. Um Reznak uh, suggests, you know, just taking it easy and, you know, using diplomacy. Um, the shave pate suggests an altogether more direct form of diplomacy, which is <laughs> kill one man from every great house as punishment. And if another of your soldiers is killed, kill two men from every great house. And he guarantees there won't be a third. But the problem, <laughs> the problem with that, uh, as Reznak points out, is that um, it, it might not just be the, the rich masters who are doing this. Um, yeah. Yeah, what did you think? Which is the best way to go here? It's, it's, a, it's a pretty much impossible problem to solve, isn't it, that she's got here? I mean, it really is. And far be it from me to suggest anything as boring as, you know, establishing a proper, uh, you know, a proper police force with proper oversight and uh, accountability on all levels and, you know, more dialogue between... No, fuck all of that. <laughs> um, fuck as well, however, the idea that killing one person and then killing two people and then what's he going to do next? Kill four? kill eight it's that thing about the um the the guy who said um said to a king you know just pay me by placing one coin on one square of the chessboard then on the next one two and then the next one four and the next one eight and by the time you get to the end of it you need more coins than there are in the universe Mm. and it's like precisely how well populated are these great noble houses of marine Mm. how many children and servants do they have like you get to a point where like the fifth the fifth offence in, in a city in anarchy, by the way. So by about 9.45 in the morning, you'd be looking around in these great houses for, like, you know, distant third cousins twice removed from an illegitimate relationship with the, the, the house cat or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's not exactly a governance strategy so much as it is, like, a good... It seemed like a good idea when he was drunk, I would imagine. I, I feel like he came up with that idea with his mates. He's thinking about ways to impress the, the Khaleesi, you know... And they're like, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell her to kill fucking everybody. And all of his mates, instead of going steady on, they go, you're steady genius. <laughs> that's a bit much, Shavy. Come on, steady yeah. on. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Bring it in, Shaves. Bring it in, son. <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like the idea of when it gets to the stage of sort of distant relatives, people are saying, weren't you the cousin twice? No. No, <laughs> I, I, I was I not. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. It's like I'm... You just end up everybody just introducing themselves to one another, going, "Hi, my name is uh, transparently created name. Uh, it's a triple-barreled surname, uh, and uh, I'm new in town. Very, very new in town. No ties here previously, 
at all. The, uh, the the marriage industry in Marine just goes through the floor as well. Everyone's calling him <laughs> off left, right, and centre. Yeah, no. It's like I'm not. Get, I am not getting related to you. No <laughs> chance. You lived here for a while, have you? Fucking hell. <laughs> Um, Danny moves into the the throne room to receive um, the petitions for the day. Basically, it seems that every day hundreds of people are turning up with various grievances, mostly to do with um, the the sack of the city, which happened obviously not so long ago, Um, and the various other things as well. There's a guy from, there's an emissary from King Cleon, who is known um, as as the Butcher King of Astapor. Lovely chap. (laughs) (laughs) Great conversationalist. I'll level with you, though. When I first read that, there was some mad bit of my brain which thought that she, he was actually preferring, referring to somebody who was just the most powerful and important of all the butchers in Astapor. <laughs> and so king imagining that butchers. there's also like a baker king and a street sweeper king. And like, you know, because you have that all over. You've been to the States. You've got the mattress king, the 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 car care king the you know all of that i just imagine you know astapor having like you know a king for every single industry you know these are the best steaks in the world by royal decree (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're so good i put my crown on them (laughs) no unfortunately he's called the butcher king for, for for much worse than that um, and he's he, he keeps trying to forge some kind of alliance, maybe even a marriage with um, with Daenerys. The the sort of what's happened in Astapor <laughs> is it? Are, are, you're the butcher king of the, <laughs> yeah. of the Astapor butcher kings. Oh, oh, I'd love to marry into your family. I'm sure you solve all marital disputes in peace and mutual respect. <laughs> yeah, I think it, the what's happened in Astapor serves as a bit of a warning to Daenerys as as to what would happen if she just up sticks and left Marine now, um, yeah. and that's one of the reasons it's keeping her here at the moment, knowing that. Bad as things are, they're likely to get a lot worse. So you go the same way as Astapor if she just gives up and leaves now. Yeah, absolutely. There's absolutely. more, more than a little mate, parallel with modern day sort of Western intervention in the Middle East, isn't there here? I think yeah, it's at the well, back of Martin's it, mind when he's writing this. Yeah, and, and it makes a lot of sense as well, I think. I mean, I, and I think it's, it's the old problem of if people respect you because of your capacity for violence that's actually only good for keeping them where you intend for them to be, like to keep them under control. Mm. Um, it's a very, very, very bad long-term strategy for governance um, mm. because ultimately people don't like you and they don't like following you and they are scared of you. And when people are scared, they're not acting to build stuff or make stuff or live in harmony. You know, they're just, they, they've seen that violence has got them all the way, got you all the way to the top of their, their particular tree. Hmm. And so it looks to them like the solution to that is violence. And it's a huge problem to try and transition to, you know, a peaceful and kind of prosperous way of doing things. Hmm. Um, and you're right. I think, you know, I think um, I think Iraq is over the last decade has been a, a horrifyingly good example of that mm-hmm. um, where, you know, where you think it's all right to just go in, lay waste and then move on. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that's actually the most difficult thing you can possibly attempt to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when did I wonder if this was, you know, this was a, a, an element that got introduced sort of during that time period? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, so this came out in, what, 2011? Yeah. Um, and The Feast for Crows came out in 2005, right? Mm-hmm. So you can totally see, can't you, how, like, you know, a, a Feast for Crows gets written 
kind of over the period of the, the Iraq war kind of starting and, and, and the first couple of years of it, and it doesn't really make its way into the text. But then, you know, over the next six years, all you hear about this great triumphant military experience is that it's actually ended up with a horrifyingly high number of deaths on all sides mm. and that it's been very difficult to run Iraq well since. Mm. Um, yeah, so I definitely see a bit of satire, a eh? fantasy that reflects upon reality. <laughs> um, the... Um the it it is obviously it is a great story to tell as well, isn't it? It's an interesting um, oh, yeah. thing to to grapple with. How do you how do you rule over an occupied um, an occupied city that you that you know very little about and that you have very little in common with in terms of culture? Um, yeah, this is totally. summed up nicely in this guy called Hisdar Zolorak, another um, name to remember. He uh, is this rich merchant who keeps petitioning um, Daenerys to try and get the fighting pits open, basically like the glad- gladiator pits, basically, um, which slaves used to fight in. And this is his sixth appeal to the to the queen. And um, mm. she actually says, I'll stop you there. I'll explain, because I've heard it so many times before, all your... Um, you know all your arguments, and she sort of recites them all. And his, his response is like, "Hmm, you make a really good case. I agree. I think we should open." That. <laughs> she sort of almost laughs at that. Um, That's it's, that is pretty good. That's like that is the that is the audacious charm school of manipulating a monarch, isn't it? Yeah, you know you can imagine that working with Queen Elizabeth I. <laughs> it's funny. This guy is much is, is quite a lot different to how he is in the series. He's much more charismatic and sort of cheeky. Than um, the guy, he's, the the guy in the sort of in the series, his star is sort of uh, is earnest and quiet and like very very. Um, I don't know. He's very very different to, to to the sort of character that I read here, and which is mm. quite interesting how they departed from that. Um, there's a slave owner um, who talks about a, a dressmaker story. Basically, he had a slave who used to make loads of really fantastic textiles. He got the slave to teach all these other um, women to do it in his household. And then when they were all freed, they've all sort of set up their own shops now, and he's not getting nice. any money out of it. Um, and he wants to get paid, and she says, no, you can't. Um, yeah. And then there's the other side, there's this boy, um, I think a boy of a slave-owning family, who saw his uh, parents murdered and his mother actually raped. And now the mm. killers and rapists are living in his house, um, yeah. and he wants, you know, some justice there. And Daenerys has yeah. basically done with what, on sort of a macro level, seems quite sensible, which is basically saying anything from the sack on, on or earlier, we're not going to yeah. deal with. It's sort of an amnesty for that, just yeah. so she's not endlessly getting these petitions. But yeah. you know, when you try and tell someone like this, this boy who's seen his parents killed and the killers are now living in his house that, yeah. you know, things are going to stay the same. It doesn't sound like justice and she thinks the harpies, the, the harpies have got another sort of recruit there straight away. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and this is a great example of what um, uh, of the standard kind of um, stated problem or like argument with um, uh, places like Rwanda and um, other places where sort of truth and reconciliation commissions have taken place, mm. where do you familiar with this this like this way of doing things? The truth, and, yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of quite a um, it's, it's sort of the go to way of fixing something like <clears throat> post conflict resolution. Now, isn't it? Yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. But precisely because he's 
it's more effective at creating um, kind of peaceful societies than a long process of trying to try everybody for everything that was done wrong during that time. Hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of a way of saying, actually, the thing that's broken here is relationships. And so we need to bring people back together and, and like, help them to have conversations where they say, you killed my mum. And yes, I did. And, you know, and like that, hmm. it's, it's, it's heart, heartbreaking to think about and to watch. And um, but it's you know it, it has this focus on how can we move forward from this, acknowledging that wrong was done, instead of how can we just make more violence result from violence. Mm-hmm. So, but as you say, you know, in a lot of places it is really, really, really difficult, and particularly when power dynamics aren't addressed like this. So, you know, the people who raided this kid's home and took everything away from him, you know, because they were more privileged than him, they get to keep the house. And so there's a thing there where it's like there's not really been a process of restitution at all. Mm-hmm. There's just been, fuck it, we got away with it, which is very, very different. Um, but, you know, what else can you do? What, what, mm. I'll tell you what, what, what Daenerys needs right now is she needs the Westerosi version of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. <laughs> That's what she needs. She needs. She needs an absolute genius of peacemaking to turn up there, smile at everybody and be like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> but she hasn't. What yeah. she's got is is Dario Naharis and the shave pate. K- and the shave pate. No, <laughs> kill everyone. Not confident. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The shave kill everybody pate. Yeah. Um, there's also this. Um, she's trying to provide restitution for people who have had sheep and livestock killed by her dragons, who seem to be running amok and just burning <laughs> sort of sheep left, right, and centre. Problem is the bill's going through the roof because. It's basically the least policed insurance scheme of all time. So everybody's coming forward saying, oh, yeah, uh, look at these burned bones from my campfire. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like um, the... um, It's like a less macabre version of that thing that was going on in the last book where Cersei put a a reward on anybody bringing her Tyrion's head, which Hmm. means... Like, it's not safe to be a dwarf in Westeros anymore. People are just cutting their heads off and bringing them in and being mm. like, look, it's him. Well, he was short anyway. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's it's that sort of acquisitiveness. Yeah. Um, but with sheep instead of humans, so, you know. Yeah, until this um, gets a, takes a turn here, um, the final petitioner comes forward, and it's the burnt bones of a child, and he's saying, look, yeah. your dragon's killed my daughter, and yeah. this is a sudden sort of... This sort of goes back to when we've seen the dragons getting bigger, that they're becoming a serious problem now and they're becoming less and less easy to control. And this may be the first major step towards uh, having to do something serious about these dragons now because they are dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, this was a great example of... I love this. This felt much more powerful to me here Mm. than... um, than the way it was done in the TV series. In the TV series, it just felt a bit ghoulish. Mm-hmm. It just felt a bit like, look, what are the horrifying things we can put on TV now? Yeah. But um, but here, I really felt the sort of human impact of it, where I was like, oh shit, mm. you know, and like you really feel it as a moment for character development. Yeah. With Daenerys, and I think that's great. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll leave that. That's. A, I thought that was a very strong chapter to get back in. I'm, I'm really invested in what's going on. That's probably the, the yeah. area that I'm most interested in now, to be honest, what's going on with Daenerys. Um, yeah. It's a really interesting uh, problem for her to grapple with, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, totally. We move back to the wall then with Jon. So, again, this is the sort of aftermath of the battle at the wall from the Night's Watch side. Yeah. Um, Jon does a bit oh, it's of... It's all hits this, isn't it? Tyrion... <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Daenerys, Jon Snow. Fantastic. Yeah. Jon does a bit of wargan himself, uh, goes into, goes into uh, Ghost for a bit. Um, yeah, well, I, uh, right, and here's the thing. Have we actually previously seen Jon do that? Like, there's been hints and there's been, you know, whatevers, but we've never actually seen it happen happen, have we? I don't think so, no, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that was the first time that that was introduced to me before in the, in, the, um, in the prologue, where he says at one point, you know, I looked at Jon Snow and I knew he was a warg. Yeah. I knew he was a skin changer. And I read that and I was like, ooh. And that was, <laughs> that was kind of why I feel slightly more hope for this storyline and this whole... This whole setup, because that warg thing has always been far too interesting to just have happening to a couple of characters. Mm. But George doesn't seem to care about putting in plot devices and then leaving them just to gather dust for two or three volumes, right? Yeah. So I was that always seemed to me to be really, really interesting because there's all sorts of crap, isn't there? I mean, we'll see the um, the the Raven in this in this thing where previously, you know, it had been we'd put it in the category of fan theory that you know Jorah Mormont was a um, was a was a skin changer and yeah. and had gone into his raven when he died. But mm. actually now I'm like, oh, this is actually a plot thing. This isn't like the Varys is a mermaid stuff. <laughs> this is this is actually real. And I loved it. I just sort of brought a whole new kind of um, element to it. Never mind what's going on with the other Stark mm. kids. All of a sudden I'm more interested in all of their stories because it's more interesting than just, well, you're a kid in this horrifying climate and you're going to get killed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It looks like all the Starks, we can assume, um, have this sort of would have had this power to do that. Um, although yeah. obviously Sansa and Rob will never discover whether they can do it. When we don't know what the hell's happening with Rickon, who's disappeared. Sansa. Oh, oh, with, yeah, because their dogs have been yeah. killed. Eh? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. But um, I was going to say, did I miss the bit where Sansa got killed? Did no, that no, happen no. at the end of the last book? <laughs> but you have to ask that question, don't you? Because it's a Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, so, so what? What was it with the with this this crow that's um, keeping John company that made you um, sort of think? Ah, is this? It's definitely there's definitely well, a piece of Mormons in there. Because in the scene at the end of uh, the, when John gets promoted to sort of Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, hmm. the, the birds flying around the room going snow, snow, <laughs> snow, and I'm like at the time. I think you mentioned something about maybe it's Mormon, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, and Varys is a mermaid. But where, whereas, now I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, because it mentions things like, in this thing, it says that he ate Jorah Mormont's face, hmm. and and I was thinking, that's, you could just imagine Mormont being, right, I'm dead, I don't want anybody, you know, I don't want to have to fly around and watch myself rot, so... <laughs> You know, so let's let's yeah, let's deal with the problem now, sort of thing. Like I could well see Mormon. Mormon, he wasn't. He, he took no shit. That man. You know what I mean? Imagine him being like, "Well, the most direct solution for this is for me to eat my own cheeks." So here we go. <laughs> yeah, I still think it's very much in the in the area of, of fan theory. I don't I don't remember reading anything later on to make it clear that this is what has happened. But I think there's definitely hints that he did sort of. It's too sort of clever a bird, isn't it? For it yeah. Not to be. Like for all that ravens are supposed to be particularly clever, this one's basically doing sums. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like so. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, we we meet a few um, new and returning characters as John makes his way through the practice yard. Um, there's a guy called Iron Emmett who is from the um, East Watch by the Sea, who's this really tough um, Night's Watchman. He's training new recruits. Um, he's one of these sort of expert fighters. We need a few sort of replacements and um, 
coming in here because so many of the yeah. oh actually it's, it's less so than in the series a number of characters died who actually didn't die in the in the book here but um yeah. the, the knights which are severely depleted after the massive battle at the uh, at the wall um yeah. there's also obviously the um stannis's uh, knights and soldiers all sort of knocking about around the uh, uh, the uh, Castle Black now, including mm. this guy called Sir Godfrey Faring, who seems to be sort of swaggering around, throwing his weight around. And he has been given the, the moniker Giant Slayer. It turns out <laughs> apparently he, there was a giant which was wounded and almost dead and he chased after it and hacked its head off. And now it's sort of, it's turned into this story where he defeated it in single combat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like it's it's always funny, isn't it, when you come across these characters in this world who are like so good at self promotion. Because he's, he's swaggered around hmm. like he's got a 95 foot dick, isn't he? This bloke. He's like kind of, I killed a giant, which is a little bit like me coming across a beached whale on the beach and starting to call myself the heir of freaking Ahab from Magic. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not the way it is, is it? Yeah. I thought it was interesting how um, the two different perspectives as well, because John remembers this story that Egret told about the last of the giants and the sadness around it. And um, yeah. it just shows, again, I suppose it reminds us of John's sympathies for the people the other side of the wall, whereas most yeah. of the soldiers and the Night's Watch just see them as monsters to be killed, just like anything yeah, else. Yeah. Well, and another parallel with the way that wars are fought, you know, the people who are generally quite good at building peace after a war are the people who've come to respect the place they're fighting, um, and the people mm. who are just there to kill, you know, reams of nameless, faceless evil ones. Hmm. Are you know are really awful for for you know, for war really, but also for reconstruction. Hmm. Yeah, and we also bumps into Sam. <laughs> this is a good example of where it can be quite confusing because I read this oh, and thought, shit, yeah. "What is 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 he just made a mistake here?" Sam's in old town, and then you need yeah. to remember that we have rewound, uh. and uh, he's back at the wall again now. It's that, such a- that, that Bad feels, technique. That, yeah, it? it feels a bit like snakes and ladders, doesn't it? It feels like we've just sort of lost a lot of ground we've gained by, you know, sitting through Sam's long, boring voyage across the sea. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, actually, that's true, isn't it? Because not only is it we've gone all the way back to a beginning that I'd forgotten about, mm. but we've also, it feels emotionally as though you've been cheated out of all of that fucking time you put into reading about, Sam was on the ship, the rain fell down, oh, <laughs> some fucked up shit there, oh, Master Aegon's pretty sick for a 92-year-old <laughs> on a, a wintry storm crossing, you astonish me. You know, just over and over again, you were like, all right, there's, you push through it because George writes good books and you're like, at the end of this is going to be something worthwhile here, and I'm yeah. sure there still is, but I'm like, do I have to, again, must I? <laughs> yeah, I think if, if in Feast for Crows, Sam had gone off and got involved in some amazing battle or adventure, which was just heart-stopping moments and, you know, pulsating all the way through, yeah. then if it rewound, you'd think, oh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll see that again. Maybe we'll see it from another perspective. Maybe, But this is the opposite. You're just looking at it with fear. You're looking at it thinking, shit, we're not going to have to take that voyage with, like, in Eamon's head now. Are we? <laughs> Something like yeah, that. that would be completely amazing. Next chapter is Maester Eamon. <laughs> that would be awful. <laughs> oh, okay. thank you for finding another way for me to be yeah, have a certain amount of apprehension about how the rest of this book is going to fall out. Now, cheers, appreciate that. You've done the long voyage. Now do it again. And this time you're blind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this time it's all using only the sensory input of a man who hasn't had 
functioning senses for 20 years. Yeah. Oh, cheers. Nice. Thanks. Well, we'll see if that comes to pass later on. We should find out fairly soon because I think Sam's getting sent away. It seems that John's got his sort of, it's already hatching his plan to, to send uh, to send the, the baby away. Um, John goes to visit Stannis. Stannis is being a pain in the ass at the moment. He um, He's not getting much help from the Northmen. He's basically sent all these letters out saying, right, Stannis is here, me, come and join me. And the car Starks have said, hell yeah, because we've, no, you know, we've, <laughs> we've got no other fucker to follow. <laughs> yeah. And everybody else in the North has gone, mm, no thanks. Yeah. And John makes quite a yeah. good point no. when Stannis questions me about this. He says, you know, um, they've been through enough already and they're not really keen to jump into another war on the side of some king we've never heard of or have hardly heard of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, but it does come across because this is the north and this is Westeros and there's a certain amount of kind of uh, rough and tumble in the approach they take. It's almost as if the entire north of the country has gathered around Stannis going, Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> and I found that very pleasing because Stannis, Stannis has been a humorless wanker for some time. Yeah. But this whole conversation he has with, with uh, Jon Snow here, I thought, was the very living height of hypocrisy. Yeah. He spends his entire time, like, like he, he, he seems to be, like, physically unable to even stomach the idea of people, of hypocrites and turncoats existing in the world. But he yeah. spends his entire conversation trying to get Jon to walk away from a solemn oath, which he's, you know, he's taken unto death. Yeah. And his argument is something, 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 I'm the king, fuck off do as I say, don't do as I do. And so where previously in the past, Stannis is a nasty piece of work and, and Melisandre is a nasty piece of work squared, but there's a certain amount of grudging respect you could have for somebody who had such a high level of principle. But now I'm like, now it's Stannis, you just, you, you know, you're just as power hungry as everybody else, but you're not even, you've just dressed it up in the clothes, in the rather Puritan clothes of somebody who thinks the universe owes it to him as well as everything else. And, and it's just, yeah, I just at the end of this conversation, I was on a chair whooping and hollering for John, as you'd expect, and just lip curling with contempt towards Stannis. Really, of all the uh, northern lords that Stannis needs on side, the the big thing Stannis is struggling for at the moment is cash, cold hard cash, and uh, that's why he needs White Harbor and the Mandalays because. The North isn't the richest place in the world uh, in Westeros, but um, White Harbour is probably the richest of the cities. It's this port on the sort of south side of uh, of West of uh, of the North, yeah. if you like. And it's, it's the sort, it's sort of comes in. Uh, elderly edge of Westeros, isn't it? <laughs> the place where all the rich footballers hang out. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's got a weird little history, actually, because I, I think it, in one of the earlier books we were told it, how the... Um, the Mandalays who sort of set up White Harbour and built it were sort of descendants for some some group of like some house that was driven out of the south, and then and the northern really yeah the Starks sort of took them in and gave yeah. them a little patch of land to build a city and they built this amazing sort of wealthy trading uh, port, but they were always known as like super loyal to the Starks. The Starks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's amazing. And then Stannis is coming along. And where anybody else would have the grace to look a little bit embarrassed by it, he's stomping around going, <laughs> I am the true king. Fuck you all and your loyalties. Never mind any of that. I'm the definer of what do you mean you're not going to help me? <laughs> Fuck you, people. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because uh, we did, if you remember, I think it might have been way back in. Yeah, it was. It was in book one. 
mm. the uh, Wyman Mandali, who's the sort of the top guy uh, of the Mandalays, the Lord, he um, was round at Winterfell all those many moons ago talking to Bran at the Harvest Festival. And oh, we, yeah. we were a bit suspicious of him because he was coming out with all these things like, oh, um, we should mint some, uh, you know, coins of Rob and we should do it in my city and I'm building a fleet for you and all this. And we were like, this is all a bit too good to be true. He's just trying to get as much power as possible out of Rob. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, but it's, it's obviously either one of two things. Either he is now... Um, a much more pragmatic operator than maybe his ancestors were, or yeah. he is sort of ultra loyal and sort of was just yeah. constantly trying to do anything for the Starks. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you wouldn't blame him, but at the same time, this is Westeros where loyalty doesn't really mean a great deal. Yeah. So it's so it's difficult to know, isn't it? It's difficult to say. I quite like the. Um, uh, I, I I quite like the excuse he gives as well. Um, you know what I mean? Where he's like, sort of like, I'm too fat to get on a horse, and my wife is very young. <laughs> <laughs> and Stannis is incredibly, incredibly dismissive of this too fat to get on a horse. <laughs> Jon Snow's just like, no, seriously, no, he, he's fucking massive. Like, he shouldn't be anywhere near a horse. Yeah, he makes Ilria look like a bodybuilder. <laughs> <laughs> Globulus is where you'd have to start. In describing this man's breasts. <laughs> yeah. Globulus is how you describe his nose, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when, he, when, he, when you get to his chest, you, you're really getting up there amongst sort of pendulous, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of statement of, uh, of size. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so that's the man. So that's who they've... That's who Stannis realises he really needs to, to, to convince. In the meantime, he is uh, he's trying to do some more convincing in his own inimitable way. Uh, and he's he wants all the castles along the wall. We may have touched on this in Storm of Swords actually, at the end. He, yeah. he wants all the castles along the wall, which are empty anyway. And from his point of view, he's basically saying, look, you've, the Night's Watch is so small these days, you can't, you can't sort of garrison your castles anyway. Give them to me, I'll stick loads of men in them and we'll have a fully functioning wall like it should have been. And I yeah. get to give my lords who've come along with me some kind of reward because that's the whole point of them following him. Yeah. Um, I mean, he doesn't put it in those terms. He basically says, give me the castles, I want them and you can't stuff them. So there you go. Yeah, um, yeah, but he says, it, he said, again, Stannis is like the least diplomatic person in the universe, isn't he? He yeah. just goes, give me those castles. And again, yeah. like, this is this is all about getting Jon Snow into the centre of our affections, isn't it? Again, yeah. like, remember, this is the guy you're supposed to pull for. Yeah. Because he's just like, nope, nope. <laughs> Not giving him away, yeah. no sir. And I just, I do kind of love that as well. That he's like, I've already given you one. That's what you're getting. Yeah. Now you know, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> and he's also quite <laughs> astute politically because he knows how this will look as well, regardless of the logic of it, regardless of whether yeah. he can staff them or not. Just the act of giving away these castles to, you know, the night, the sort of whole thing, the Night Watch takes no part. Uh, the whole. Yeah. A sort of vision of giving a load of castles to this king who isn't even on the throne yet, regardless yeah. of whether he's helped them or not. He's obviously got. He's obviously trying to think more long term, John, as well. Which is what you've got to do. It's good leadership, mm. you know. Even though he's completely shagged, yeah. it is. It is good leadership. It's the right thing to do. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, 
the white walkers and the whites and all this are on the way and you need soldiers in those castles so yeah. you can see yeah, the argument you, you, for it yeah yeah definitely but i i would at that point you've got to call his bluff because it's not as if stannis is giving you anything in return is it stannis is not inclined to enter into sign of you scratch my back i'll scratch yours arrangements yeah. he just stomps around demanding things yeah uh, we, uh, uh, but and this is where you get him because his whole thing is you know the lord of light fire is my thing i'm gonna fight off these white walkers you know the the realm needs me and that's why he's ended up in this fucking stupid place to begin with yeah you know there's no other reason why it's not like there's a lot of wealth up there he's gone there because it's almost like spiritual warfare mm. you know he's kind of like i am the forces of light you are the forces of darkness at which point you have to be like well whether i give you eternal right to those castles or not you're going to stick around and fight these fucking things because that's what you're here to do yeah right? yeah um, so I think there's a there is a again it's quite politically astute from John. He knows that he's going to Stannis is going to stick around anyway. Otherwise, why the hell is he up there? Yeah, and he tries to offer this compromise where he says, "Look, you know, um, just you can you can garrison the castles, but you need to be under sort of the command of Night's Watchmen." Mm. And yeah. Stannis obviously can't countenance that. So it's it's this sort of negotiation as to how they how it's. It really does say it all about the problems south of the wall, doesn't it? The fact that the biggest threat for generations is on the way, and they can't even agree to come to an agreement over how to man the wall. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's ridiculous when you think about yeah. it, isn't it? Um, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, uh, we also after after they have this discussion, which doesn't really get them anywhere, uh, John leaves and he sort of. Texas walk with Melisandre, and uh, she says a few very interesting things to him, uh, very cryptic, uh, fire-reading things. I can never decide if she, with her with her sort of prophecies, is actually seeing the future or is just kind of making stuff up as she goes along. Blagging it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, and 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 it's difficult, isn't it? Because she employs the sort of rhetorical tricks of the cheap, you know, televangelist yeah. type. You know what I mean? The, the kind of person who, you know, might have heard about something true once upon a time, but is now just purely in it to manipulate people. Mm. And um, uh, and you can totally see, like, that's what she's doing. Those are the rhetorical tricks that she employs. But at the same time, it's been shown that she does see things in the flames that are true. Mm. And it does seem to be slightly more than just, like, cold reading and so on. Yeah. So it's so it's very strange. It's, it's almost like you kind of want to grab her by the shoulders and be like, if it's true, talk like a trustworthy person instead of essentially giving the impression that you've always, always just stopped cackling loudly just out of earshot, <laughs> yeah. which is her whole kind of demeanour. And it really works here as well, doesn't it? It's yeah. real kind of you know bird's eye view of this situation up at the wall yeah. where it's like where you know like okay so john we're cheering for uh melisandre is uh shifty as fuck and stannis is uh could not be colder and more rigid if he had a fucking icicle up his ass <laughs> and that's it and that's all right okay now we're back on form right a book later we now know where we all are yeah yeah it's i think you're i think you're right about melisandre's prophecies in that she kind of she does see things, she does sort of correctly predict things by seeing them in the flames, but sometimes she's wrong as well. She just gets glimpses, yeah. and um, yeah, sometimes she interprets yeah. them wrong. To be honest, that is what she says about her prophecies as well. More often than not, she says, you know, the flame, I think she says it here, that, you know, the flames reveal things, but sometimes the people looking at them don't get it right, um, mm. which is, 
yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she ends the chapter with um, a bit of a chilly uh, quote, where she, like John says, well, actually, this is this this discussion. She basically ends the discussion by saying, "You know nothing, Jon Snow." Um, oh, of course, echoing Egret. Yeah, 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 but in just a much less fun and uplifting manner. Yeah, um, which is basically Melisandre's thing, isn't it? You know, she's gonna she like, and I wonder if she purposefully chooses if if like this is a kind of malicious little poke back because John hasn't given her what she wants, <laughs> you know, to just sort of shit him up a little bit, um, or you know, or if it's just, or if it's that was there was never any chance of her liking him or being pleasant towards him, and she's just you know getting him in a position where she can just stick the knife into maximum effect. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought she was saying it to prove that she does know things that she couldn't possibly know. Yeah. To sort of say, look, you know, I do know what I'm talking about because uh, yeah, I know, yeah. like, things about you that you, you know, no one should know. Because I was thinking, does she, has she picked this up from someone else? But I can't think who he would have told about that. It seems... Yeah, it's not exactly as if, like, he's kind of sitting, even with even with Sam, it's not like he's sitting there at night, you know, painting each other's toenails and yeah. telling him about his girlfriend. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, they don't gossip. Yeah. So it seems likely to me that this is insight. Either that or by some absurd freak of chance, you know, she was hidden in the shadows when they were shagging in that cave. <laughs> <laughs> or, or it's just something that she says as well, and it's just this ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> That would be amazing, wouldn't it? It's just like, oh, what, innocently, I had no idea. <laughs> I'd love it if, you know, if you read back now, you saw she does say it a few times and you see you don't notice and it's just something she says. <laughs> yeah, we're at the mercy of internet memes here, aren't we, and catchphrases where, you know, it's been noticed with Egret but not with uh, Melisandre. Yeah. Shall we move on to the final chapter for today? Yeah. Um, get ready from a serious point of view, a real blast from the past because we're back with Bran. And, and here we're, we're kind of covering material that was last seen two years ago in the series because it's basically series four stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah. it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, I now understand the the confusion that many of my friends who had read the books first were t- telling me about when they watched series four because mm. they were like, they were like, what the? F- did, by the time the end of the brand kind of arc had finished in series four, yeah. They were like, they are now beyond the books, as I understood it. So they were like, am I going to get more of this, or is Bran just not in it? Yeah. And it's very clear Bran is not in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he makes a triumphant return in Series 6, but we'll have to wait and see. But We will, the main, as with everything. Yeah, the main thing is, he does make a triumphant return in uh, Dance with Dragons, uh, and here he is, so... They're tracking tracking through the north. Um, when we last left them, they just uh, they've headed north of the wall uh, with this weird white zombie ranger called Cold Hands, who doesn't feature in yeah. the series. Yeah, right. And that I think has to rank as the most confusing and possibly irritating omission from the TV series mm. because because they they're very careful and very canny about putting everything in the TV series it's going to have some effect on the final storyline mm. and to me given that the whole storyline of the the series seems to be revolving around this you know ice and fire and and dragons and and you know these kind of frozen beings from the north um and then here is one who seems to be one of those beings but seems to have more to do than just walk around looking fucking terrifying with bright blue eyes and shitting people up. Mm. You know, he's helping for some reason. 
Yeah. Right? And that's really interesting to me. And that makes me think, oh, maybe, you know, maybe the White Walkers are going to turn out to be something different. And, oh, you know. And, but... It's not in the TV series. So I'm like, so, you know, what's happening there then? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just, I have no confidence whatsoever that, um, that this, this character is going to matter. And that's really sad because it's on the surface of it, it seems to be so interesting an idea. Mm. What do you make of Cold Hands, though? Is he baddie? Goody? Not to be trusted? Very much to be trusted? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? He's, um, he's there to get Bran somewhere, uh, whether or not that somewhere is is good or bad we just don't know do we and um and i think bran uh and you know uh and mira sort of have this out in this chapter where they sort of it's, it seems they sort of <laughs> suddenly realize after days with him that he is actually dead um yeah and you know they sort of finally put it as sort of i suppose they are kids they finally put it together that this yeah. guy is not a man, it's some kind of monster. But, um, yeah. you know, they kind of got no choice now. They've just got to go with him and see where it ends because they wouldn't survive yeah. on their own. Because yeah. you really get the sense from this chapter that it's it really is desperate for them. They are, they are only just surviving because so, the conditions are so, um, are so bad now north of the wall in terms of just how yeah. cold yeah. it is. Um, yeah. But, yeah, there are a few theories about who Cold Hands is. Which maybe we'll maybe we'll discuss. Oh, are there? Yeah, maybe. Are there indeed? Maybe we'll discuss a bit later when he's you know when he's had a bit more to do. I, yeah. I, I would say there's no um, there's no guarantee just because he's not in the series that he's not going to have any kind of impact. It might just be he's got a a, a large satisfying story satisfying story arc which just isn't featured at all in the in the series and they just sort of laid it to one side. But yeah. we'll see. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think he's at the moment very much he's a mystery. His cold hands, um, yeah, yeah, and they're, they're sort of trekking. He's he's kind of like a sort of dark, macabre version of Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. That's totally true, actually, isn't it? Yeah, and but whereas Aragorn's kind of entrance was played for played for kind of frightening effect for about three seconds. Yeah, this is played for frightening effect for a long time. Yeah. And and you know you do kind of wonder like where's it coming from like what's going on yeah but I think it's an easy parallel to draw isn't it he's got sort of this expert woodsman stroke you know um, wild character who's sort of trailing along a, a group of hardy but ultimately fairly you know fairly vulnerable people uh, behind him yeah effectively children yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 very much, very much. But I'll tell you what I did like about this is um, there was a lot of time taken on screen in the TV series where there's all sorts of peril they kept coming across in this storyline from these deserted um, uh, Night's Watchmen. Yeah. You know, these dudes, these horrible fucking wankers who had killed Jorah Mormont and, you know, then they came across them. And there were like three or four sequences, I think, if I remember correctly, where it was just like... Oh, this is going to be really horrifying, and and then they always got away, and it always seemed to me like a bit of a waste of time on screen yeah. because be, even before I read this, I was like, y- you know, that's just an unbalanced situation every time, isn't it? Like I'm not, I'm just assuming you're going to do something horrible to these characters, yeah. Um, 
and that pisses me off because I think they've got some interesting plot to come. Um, and so I'm even more pissed off with the TV series now having read this and realised that fucking none of that happens in the books. And he just does this really interesting thing with, you know, travelling further into the north and, you know, Jojen continuing to struggle and cold hands and, and all of this warg stuff as well. Mm. You know, more and more Bran being a warg and all of that and, the, you know, the three-eyed crow and that sort of thing. Um that stuff's fascinating to me. So I'm like, why the fuck did you bother having these kind of like basically scally of the week approach, mm. like coming across the latest, you know, terrifyingly violent whoever, yeah. um, only to escape from in the first scene of the next episode? Like, it seems to me a, a waste of time. Yeah. And there's the, um, in the series, there's the fucking legend of Jin Ali. Who's a- oh, there bloody is as well. I'm the fucking legend of Gin Alley, me. I'm not at all insulting towards people from the Manchester area. Like, fucking just cast Sean Ryder in that role. Do you know what I'm saying? Just, if you're going to do that, go nuts. But you're yeah. a fucking marmont. Dickhead. <laughs> I, I quite liked that character in the series, but I know so many people who absolutely hated him, so it was yeah. definitely a Marmite character. But anyway, it's not uh, Definitely book, a Marmite so. character, and it's worth saying that I am not from Manchester, and you are, so I think you're well within your rights to, to take that character however you like him. But I was just like, oh, fucking really? Like, I'm not saying I haven't met people like that, I'm just saying <laughs> you don't have to tell the legend of Gin Alley. Where's my stash? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Where's my fucking stash? <laughs> anyway, yeah, but anyway, what a missed opportunity. He's not in the book. Um, <sighs> but so yeah, so, so the what, Bran and um, and Co and Cold Hands and that they walk, they're hiking, trekking um, towards this unknown destination. And uh, yeah, you mentioned Bran does a lot of walking into. Uh, into his uh, his wolf summer, he's also doing it into Hodor more and more now, mm. which is kind of questionable. This this in the in the context of what we saw in the prologue with Varmia, this is kind of a worrying path for Bran to take because it seems that yeah. this is a real taboo to sort of walk into another person. Um, yeah, that's where they sort of a lot of you know if you, if you're going to say walking is acceptable. Most people draw the line at, you know, but you can only do it into animals. And Bran yeah. seems to be increasingly be thinking, you know, it's not so bad if I, you know, try out Hodor now and again. Yeah. Yeah, weird, isn't it? Another one where you're like, mm, like as with Tyrion, where you're like, are you going in a dark direction? Yeah. Um, you know, could be bad. Uh, or, or indeed, could be making an audacious argument for a piece of popular fiction in our century that some people aren't really people. Mm. You know, like that, cause, because Hod, as we know, Hoddle's very simple and can only say a single word and all of that. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so is that the argument that's being made here? Mm. Because it's a bit, more than a bit troubling, if so. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know really like at this point the the ethics of a fictional psychic ability are probably beyond me to pronounce on, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean um, Coltan splits off from the group because um, he says there are there are men on the tail now and uh, mm. they need to you know get rid of them so he heads mm. off to, to deal with that threat <laughs> and, and leaves the kids Deary alone me. Yeah. yeah and they they all just sit there and go He's a zombie, isn't he? Yeah, he's a zombie. 
theory. Are we frightened? I'm I'm very fucking frightened right now. <laughs> Should we move? Oh, there's nowhere we can move. Shit. <laughs> They're like, yeah. What is he like? And there's that massive elk next to like elk. You've you've known. You go back a few years of him. What do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> Do you understand what he was saying? I did not have a clue, to be honest with you. <laughs> Bran, any idea? I'll level with you. Even when you're inside an elk's brain, it pretty much sounds like... <laughs> I'll level with you. I was inside Summer's brain, and all I could think about was how good elk would taste. So <laughs> I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This whole sequence as well with him walking in and out of Summer. Hmm. I tell you what. I mean, presumably you're about to get to this, but, but just the... There is a bit right at the end of this where um, where Bran inside Summer goes and finds this wolf pack that we saw in the prologue. Yeah. Um, one of whom is is Varmir Sixkins or whatever. Yeah. Um, and and he beats him, um, and uh, in a sort of you know wolf versus wolf fight. Yeah. Because direwolves are twice the size as ordinary wolves. Um, but the end of it is he sniffs his ass, <laughs> and like I just had this wonderful image of Bran. Like it, like it's kind of like watching it on a TV, watching something unpleasant on a TV screen. You'd be like, Bleh. but imagine doing that with all of your senses. Imagine like Bran being like, he's gonna sniff his ass. I really don't want to sniff his ass. Ah, I'm sniffing his ass. Oh, oh, this is our like, like it goes from like kind of really high fantasy thing to a sort of gross out comedy from the early noughties. You know? <laughs> Like so, yeah. dudes where dude wears my car or an Adam Sandler comedy, um, but in in like the ultimate four dimensional film experience. Yeah, did did this mean when the um, we'll talk about this that when the uh, when they have that fight, uh, basically yeah. Varmir and uh, Bran, that yeah. you know those that Varmir and the other wolves are now basically Brands. Yeah, well, I don't think they're necessarily his to sort of walk into. Because I don't know how well you can... I don't know how it works. You walk out somewhere inside a particular animal and walk into another animal yeah. and all that. Um, but it definitely seems like Summer's gone and got a wolf pack for yeah. himself. Which means that, you know, Bran's now in control of a wolf pack. He's yeah. the chief of a wolf pack sort of thing. Yeah. Um, should be an interesting one. I think that would be very interesting to see. Yeah. Um, just before we get to that, they're, uh, they're trekking across this... I quite liked this this image of them trekking across this massive frozen lake um, on the back of this, you know, giant elk. Um, it was just <laughs> the most wintry uh, sort of image I could imagine. Yeah, it is. It's 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 an absolute gimme for visuals, isn't it? Mm. Which makes me kind of wonder why on earth they didn't use it in the TV series. Yeah, yeah. You just see it, can't you? Like struggling up to crest a hill, everybody hanging off a massive elk. <laughs> yeah. I'd watch. <laughs> yeah, the sort of you can you can hear the sort of ice crunching under its hooves as it's slowly making its way. You can see the sort of breath in the air as it breathes out. It's just yeah, absolutely. Very... And you can hear it whenever whenever it gets a bit colder. It just goes, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody looks at Bran and he goes, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they they come across this village just about. They nearly miss it because they're just little mounds of snow because they're so covered up the houses. Um, yeah. But they sort of camp there. They can't have a fire because Cold Hands has warned them that it draws it'll draw dangerous things. They can't eat much. They're down to the last bit of acorn paste. So, you know, <laughs> com- compared to what's going down over in Pentos with Ilrio, that is pretty low. That is, that is some pretty low shit. Yeah. Um, but it captures it really well, mustn't it? This is one of the things that's always... 
coming from a fairly kind of northerly um, climate, globally speaking, mm. like cold and wet, I understand very well because I am English. Yeah. But um, but there's a, there's a whole other level of like I don't understand that I'm kind of in awe of cultures that develop further north than what I'm used to because mm. I'm like you know like you know so you know thinking about kind of um, Native American like First Nations in um, in Canada and stuff mm. and and um, the Sami in um, in Finland and stuff like that I'm like how did you even nothing grows eight months a year it's literally chiseling ice off of the ground how the hell are you still alive yeah. like. How has anybody managed to live up there? And it, it really, there was just something about this sequence that really brought that home to me as well. Of sort of like bloody hell, it's it is cold. Yeah. It is cold, and there is no food to be had. Yeah, yeah. Um, then, then we move on to like so to get away from that for a bit. Oh, but probably needs to. You mentioned this, but we need to talk a little bit about it. Jojen is in a really bad way, isn't he? Um, mm, he looks yeah. like he isn't long for this world at the moment. His lips are blue, yeah. and that's never a good sign. No, no. no. <laughs> I mean, that either means you're freezing to death or you've been at the shade of the evening over in Cars. <laughs> you, you love it if he just turned around and started doing all of that freaky shit. What, do you think I was frozen? Nah, motherfucker. I'm going to create a massive, irritatingly hallucinatory and unexplained sequence for you all now. Shazam! <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so to, to get away from um, the sort of the cold... Uh, Bran walks into summer again. We have this wolf fight. The wolves, it looks like, have either killed a load of Night's Watchmen um, or they've come across the sort of remains of what Cold Hands has killed. But either mm. way, it looks like Night's Watchmen have, have been killed here and Bran feels a little guilty about chewing down the summer. Um, mm. But, mm-hmm. you know, not mm-hmm. enough not to do it. Um, yeah, which is quite interesting. Mm. And then Cold Hands returns. And they're like, "Did you, you know, sort it out?" And he basically does the, "We cleared the cave." You know, I dealt with it. <laughs> sort of <thing. laughs> yeah, yeah, that real. It's done. But he takes no joy in it, and that's an interesting thing to me. Yeah. You know, if he's supposed to be a variety of White Walker, because White Walkers love doing this shit so much that they, first of all, they're not tactical in the slightest. Yeah. And second of all, they just turn up and kill every fucker. Yeah. So whatever's going on with cold hands, it's still very interesting to me. Yeah, you'd find that under hobbies and interests with white whites, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Imagine him on a dating website or something. No, like hobbies and interests, killing every fucker, looking for GSOH. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is the moment where they all say he's a monster. He's not. A, he's not a human being. This guy, and. Yeah. Um, and then they say, but he's, you know, Jojen says he's, he's Bran's monster. Um, so yeah. we've basically, you know, we've got to stick with him. He's, yeah. he might be a monster, but he's our monster, as they say. Yeah. Hmm. So. The our son of a bitch theory as applied to horrifying, possibly undead guides in fantasy worlds. Yeah. And so the verdict is to, to stay with him. Um, mm. Speaking of verdicts, at the end of our first part of A Dance with Dragons, I've got to ask you, Dave, um, how's it feeling so far in comparison to what's gone before? <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, actually. Because um, my most recent um, sort of 
a, a interaction with A Song of Ice and Fire was the TV series Game of Thrones. Mm. I'm actually enjoying this a surprisingly large amount because it's much more nuanced and subtle and character-based mm. than the TV series has become. I really think, I'm going to try not to rant about this too much, but I really did feel let down by the last series of Game of Thrones because it was just what, um, like, astonishingly violent and or disgusting things can we do on screen Mm -hmm. in order to you know it became a thing where you know it used to be somebody died it was a shock and now somebody dies because they smiled two scenes ago and that's how you know somebody's about to die yeah um and i think that's become a really lazy form of storytelling in the tv series whereas in this it's still very much i am actually invested in these characters it helps that these three characters are my favourite POV characters, and we just spent an entire book with POV characters who, I'm, frankly, I'm just relieved to be out of their heads. Yeah. Um, uh, I still think it was bollocks to split up the story this way, and I think George should have pushed back on his publishers more on this as a solution mm. um, to the fact that they hadn't put a book out in six years. I think that, that was very that was a bad idea. Um, but overall... Given that we've done, given that I've, I've already eaten the vegetables I didn't want to eat, it's nice to get onto the sort of fish and chips, which is <laughs> the, the stuff I actually wanted to have. Um, so yeah, I, good introduction. Everybody's back on form. Interested to see where it all goes, and and of course, interested to see how it differs from the TV series. You know, mm, yeah, definitely. What what about you? What about you though? Because you have a different view on this from where I am. Because I'm going through it at this weird sort of kind of hobbling forward then back kind of thing with the tv series and the books as well because i haven't read past this point yeah but you've, you've seen it all so like from where you're sitting is this is this is this good for you as well yeah i think you're right i agree with the sort of character side of things where you have been spent they get to the stage it's very hard to read a feast for crows without getting to the stage where you're just thinking i wish i was reading about Tyrion, daenerys john or to a lesser yeah. extent bran now and yeah, um yeah. so it's great to have those back um, same, kind of like how I felt reading um, Lord of the Rings, really, Two Towers, where sort of oh, you're yeah. stuck with one set and you're thinking, this is all well and good, but I'd quite like to get back to what was going on with the other lot. Um, That's true, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, it's good to be back with those. I, I, I tend to, I remember the last, from sort of the first time I read Dance with Dragons, I remember thinking it was a, a bit of a return to form. Uh, because the in terms of the sort of better characters, but that it yeah. was sort of struggled for traction a little bit as it went along. But I'll, I'll be interested to see how, how I feel about that as it goes through. But um, yeah. I think yeah. I thought this was a strong start, especially the Daenerys chapter. I was super interested in that and sort of how to rebuild a um, a conquered city. Because yeah, at first, yeah, when um, she sort of conquers Marine. I was just thinking, oh, just get over to Westeros for goodness sake, because I was waiting for that from yeah. book one. But yeah, um, yeah. I think it's a really good, uh, it's a really sort of impressive feat to to find a story that makes you think, actually, it's find a distraction that makes you think, actually, I'm really interested in how she fixes this, if she can. Very much, and it's a great, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, you carry um, on. But the, 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 the parallel you can draw there between um, the Daenerys storyline, where the distraction is interesting, mm. and it's got it's got characters and themes and arcs and everything in it that you're like, oh yeah, cool, like you know, I don't mind this detour. Mm. Whereas fucking Arya Stark goes for a walk in Westeros is just is a great example of how I've been told where the character needs to go, mm. and 
I spent an entire book and a half really angry that she wasn't getting there and that she was just falling in and out of scrapes all the time. Yeah. Because it just wasn't interesting to me at all. I didn't care and I didn't have a sense that it was building to anything. The theme of it was, wouldn't it be fucked up to be a child who is lost in a war zone? Yeah. And I'm like, well, yes, yeah. obviously. But then we went and put 40,000 words into it and I'm like, oh. You know, you could have done more interesting things there. So this is a great example of how to actually do these sort of little subplot things more interestingly. Yeah, I think that goes for a walk in Westeros. It's a good sort of point as well. And that's there's a it feels like there's better balance in this book at the moment because you've got okay, you've got Tyrion and Bran who are just sort of travelling around, uh, yeah, going yeah. towards a destination. You're waiting for them to get somewhere, and yeah. and you've got sort of. But you've got John and um, Daenerys, static, but dealing with political intrigue, which is where Game mm. of Thrones is often its strongest for me. Um, yeah, very much. Where, yeah. Whereas in Feast for Crows, basically you've either got Cersei, who you dislike, making things worse in King's Landing, or yeah, every- and essentially going insane as well. Yeah, like you don't have. There's no. There's no. The intrigue that's going on there is just her increasingly frantic attempts to save her own skin. Yeah, and it's not political. Sorry. Yeah, and then everybody else, from what I can remember, is wandering around. So you, you very little yeah. to you know. You very little yeah, focus. You're absolutely right. Actually, now you think of, that is the irritating thing, isn't it, about Feast for Crows, where it's just it meanders, hmm. and you're not. And because George has spent so much time writing the story to this point, you really have no faith whatsoever that any of this meandering, which you tolerate at best, right, is going to turn into a plot that you care about any time in the next book and a half. Mm. Um, So I will be interested to see when we get towards the end of this book where these storylines start to mesh together again, Mm. um, you know, how that that plays out and, and how any of that wandering pays off. Yeah. Um, but I, you're right, I absolutely do love now that we're back with characters where I'm like, oh, I see, there's a discernible sense of something that could happen and that might be gained or lost here. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, so I think the balance is much better at the start of this book. And um, yeah, really encouraging. Looking forward to next week. And speaking of, yeah, yeah. Um, for next week, so we're going from the next chapter, which is about Tyrion, which begins the departed Pentos by the South Gate, is it? Uh, let me have a look. It's part of Pentos by the... Well, I don't know. I'll just put by the dot, dot, dot. Anyway, that chapter. As far as uh, a chapter about John, page 135 in my book. A chapter right. about John, they brought forth the king beyond the wall. Once you get to there, stop reading. You're not going right. to... You shouldn't be finding out about what happens to the king beyond the wall till, you know, the week after that. But um, it feels good to be back. And thanks for downloading this. And... Uh, Hope you're enjoying it again. Um, assuming you did enjoy it last time. It'd be strange if you downloaded it again, having not. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for persevering, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, like, like we did with the Feast for Crows. It might get better. Let's just keep downloading. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you want to get your own um, feedback in, uh, any thoughts on how Dance with Dragons has started, uh, do, do let us know. Um, uh, you can get us on uh, sharkliveroilpodcast.gmail.com that's sharkliveroilpodcast.gmail.com or we're on twitter at sharkliveroil.com